Well, go ahead and keep your copy of God's Word out. We're going to work our way through this passage. And if you're not used to looking at the Bible, we believe the Bible is God's Word. And so like when David prays that God would speak to us through it, we really believe that. We believe that when we read the Bible and attend to it by the help of the Holy Spirit, it's as if God himself were speaking to us. So I'm excited about that. You're going to get to hear the voice of God today. And uh, what a privilege it is to preach. Now, it's uh, the month of October. Can you believe it? I can't. This year has flown by, but there are signs that it's October. College football's on the air. Uh, There's a chill in the mornings. And our neighbors are starting to set out their decorations for Halloween. You know, this is the time of the month when people start to think about all things spooky and creepy and paranormal and macabre. Have you seen any of them? There's a house on the corner over here. It's got the Chucky doll in a cage. Some things are pretty unsettling. I mean, you, you look at them, and you're an adult, and you know it's just a movie, but man, that's, that's a little weird. Ah, me too. Me too. I, I, yeah, I hear you. I got enough to worry about. I don't need monsters under my bed. But, you know, that's the way lots of people like it. And uh, I don't know, it's fun for them and, I, and more power to them. But, you know, there's a, a way of thinking about these things that holds up the trinkets of horror films and scary books next to what is real. And that's when I start to sweat a little bit. Because it is true when it comes to things like ghosts and demons that truth is stranger than fiction. Right? In fact, I read an article in the magazine Christianity Today back in 2019. It was about a man named Eric Younger. And the title of the article was Meet the Protestant Exorcist. Eric Younger is an Anglican priest in the Anglican Church in North America. And his job is to respond to the growing number of calls for someone to come and pray over demon-possessed items and people. In fact, the Vatican held a conference, invited anybody who was interested to come to learn about exorcisms. You know, that's something we normally think about when we think about Roman Catholic churches and the movies, The Exorcist, and spinning heads and projectile vomit. You know, it's a little weird, okay? I don't know how to think about all these things. And yet... There's a growing desire for somebody to come and deal with the demons. In fact, the archdiocese of the Roman Catholic Church in Indianapolis reported that in the 10 months from January through October of 2018, they received 1,700 calls for an exorcist's visit. I wonder if there's anybody in Luling, Texas, who's ever wanted an exorcist. Do you think? I don't know, it seems like a far-off thing, uh, you know, strange smells and holy water. It seems like a, a world away, but the reality of it is is that there are such a thing as demons, unclean spirits. Maybe you're like me, and you struggle to separate the fiction from the fact, and if you allow your mind to go there, it's a little unsettling, and you start to wonder if there's a demon under every rock and behind every tree, but... The questions that this passage raises for me are simple. Maybe they're the ones it raises for you. Number one, are demons real? Are they active in the world? Are there certain events that happen that you can directly attribute to their activity? 
And I kind of came to this passage with some of those questions. Sought an answer, and here's where I've come. As long as we live in the broken world we're in, we will face spiritual conflict. It's undeniable. Some of it's going to be demonic. Some of it's going to be rolling blackouts in an overtaxed power grid. Where those things end and the next one begins, I'm not completely sure. But as long as we live in the broken world, we will face spiritual conflict. But here's the good news. When you trust in Jesus, you can face that conflict with his kingdom power. And I think this passage clearly teaches that, and that's what I want you to see this morning. That when you trust in Jesus, you can face spiritual conflict with kingdom power. Now, if you were here last week, you know we started with the first half of Mark chapter 9. The transfiguration. Jesus took his three closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, up on a high mountain. And while they were there praying, he was transfigured, transformed before their very eyes. He went from the dirt-covered teacher they'd followed for years to a man shining with the radiance and glory of heaven. And they saw Moses and Elijah there with him, and the glory of God descended on the mountain like a cloud, and a voice came out and said to them, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Oh, they were caught up in the ecstatic glory of King Jesus. But a few minutes later, they have to leave the mountaintop and head back to the valley. And when they get there, David told us, things are not going well. And from a distance, Jesus sees the remaining nine disciples engaged in deep disagreement with the scribes and surrounded by a great crowd of people. And as Jesus begins approaching, the crowd sees him and rushes toward him and so amazed that finally Jesus the teacher is here. And Jesus, trying to get a handle on the situation, says, Guys, what's going on? What are you guys arguing about it now? And a man cries out with a gut-wrenching, heartbreaking tale. He says in verse 17, Teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground and grinds and foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. I mean, I don't know what Jesus was thinking when he left these nine guys at the foot of the mountain to continue his work. Maybe he just was thinking to himself, hey, you guys stay out of trouble. I got to go up here and do a thing, and I'll be right back. But whatever he had in his mind, it seems as soon as he disappeared, all hell broke loose, right? Everything went crazy. And this man explains why. You know, these disciples ran in the spiritual conflict that I've already told you is inevitable in our broken world. Spiritual conflict that I'm sure you're familiar with, though maybe not exactly in this form. I mean, this is, this is pretty wild. On a scale of 0 to 10, how intense is this spiritual conflict? This is just about as bad as it can get. I mean, here is a, a boy that Mark, Matthew tells us that it's the only begotten son of the father. So this child is deeply loved by his dad. 
I'm sure he searched for all kind of remedies and solution for the child's problem. And so finally, he hears about Jesus, and he brings him to him, hoping maybe he can get some relief. But the disciples, he says, could not do it. The Greek actually is uk iskaron. They were not strong enough to cast out this demon. And so here he is, heartbroken. At the end of his rope, tried everything, and there's nothing left. Disciples are engaged in an all-out war over this little boy. Now, many of us are modern, medically-minded people. We therapeutize every problem in our lives, and we try to get into the psychology of what's going on. And so we hear a description like this, and we start to lay it on top of medical diagnoses we may be familiar with. Most scholars, from a uh, professional perspective, try to explain away this story. Even some Bibles say, this is the story of the epileptic boy. I mean, his symptoms do look a lot like epilepsy. I mean, he's got the foaming, the convulsions, the grinding of the teeth, the stiff arms and legs. I mean, maybe you've had the misfortune of seeing someone caught up in an epileptic seizure. It's scary. And what do you do? You just stand back, lay them on their back, just call the uh, authorities, get somebody there with some medical training, you pray, right? But clearly, that's not how Mark sees this story. There's no natural or medical explanation for what this little boy is going through. In fact, every detail of the story highlights the agency of the demon. This is not a disease. It's demonic. I have three things jump out to me. Verse 18, it says the demon attacks or it seizes him. And when it does, it throws him into convulsions. Then in verse 20 or 22, it says that he throws him both into the fire and into the water with purpose, in order to kill him. I mean, while you and me, we, we think about things differently maybe than Mark's original readers, and we try to find a medical explanation for what's going on, but Mark refuses to give us the space to do that. He says the demon's behind this. He's attacking him, throwing him into convulsions, all for the purpose of killing him. This isn't a sad case of untreated epilepsy. It's a skirmish in a war. And Jesus says in John chapter 10 that the thief comes to kill, to steal, and destroy. That thief is Satan, Jesus' enemy, who opposes everything good that God wants to do in the world. And whenever he gets a chance, whenever he sees an opening, an opportunity, he steps into it in order to kill, to steal, and destroy and he was having a lot of success with this little boy. Now, I don't know about you, but I do genuinely, and I'm trying to be honest with you folks, I, I have no interest in portraying myself as something that I'm not. I've often struggled with demon stories in the Bible. But the New Testament is clear. This is one instance of over a hundred different places in the New Testament that speak about the reality of demons in the world. The New Testament wants us to understand how these things work. God doesn't want us to be in the dark about the war that's happening all around us. In fact, most of us probably, due to the way we were raised and the scientific map we have of the world, think about things, and maybe you compare it to a house. We live in a universe that has one story, okay? The ground level. You and I walk around, 
and see other people. And of course, there are forces, we call them like the laws of physics and mathematics and things like that, that are behind the scenes that we can't see. But for most of us, we believe that everything has a good, rational, and logical explanation. Right? The world has one story. It's what we can see. But for most people in the ancient world and even in other cultures today, they saw the world with three stories. They saw the world where they lived, the ground level, and they saw the third story way up in the sky. That's where the gods were. And then they saw this second story where the God level and the human level meet. And that's what this story is portraying to us. That there's more going on than just what we can see. That there is a spiritual war happening all around us. And so maybe you're like me and you come to these stories and they don't quite match your way of thinking about the world. Well, if our view of the world doesn't match the world that the Scripture portrays, the Scripture shouldn't bend. We should. And so that's what we need to do. We need to allow God to change the way we think about things. That there's not a good rational explanation for everything. That sometimes there really are malevolent beings behind the scenes pulling strings to destroy, to steal, and to kill. That's what's happening here. And so I don't want you to miss it and tune me out and say, okay, now Brad's going crazy, talking about superstitions and demons, and uh, I'll come back next week when he gets into the practical stuff about how I can be a good husband and a good dad and a good friend, and let, let, just let this crazy guy on the stage deal with the demons, okay? Because here's the question. It's fine to recognize and acknowledge that ancient peoples believed in demons. But the real question is, does it still happen today? Does it still happen today? And I want to give you a few verses to think about, maybe something to ponder Think about what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. If our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. According to Paul, Satan's main goal is to keep people who are far from God far from God. And he's going to allow them to see things in such a way that it reinforces their preconceived notions. They turn on the History Channel and watch Neil deGrasse Tyson talk about the universe. And, oh, hey, there's all the proof I need. There is no God. He keeps them blinded in unbelief. The Apostle John told the churches he pastored, Beloved, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that doesn't confess Jesus is not from God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you've heard that it's coming, and I'm telling you now, is already here. John doesn't think that it's just a natural world we're living in. He sees spirits all around, and there are good spirits, spirits that come from God, the Holy Spirit. And then there are other spirits who spew all kind of falsehoods. Spirits who disguise themselves as angels of the light and who seem to offer compelling wisdom and advice for how to live our life. And yet lead us step by step farther and farther away from God. Paul says in Ephesians 6, Put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers 
against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. You and I, we tend to run towards natural explanations and say that, hey, what we've got here is a political problem. Easily identifiable through ideologies and political parties, but maybe Paul would say, hey, wait, hold up a second. If you can poke them with a pen and blood comes out, that person's not your enemy. There's somebody else. There's something else going on behind the scenes. Your battle's not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. What about 1 Peter 5.8? This one's crazy. Be of sober spirit and on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking somebody to devour. He wants nothing better than to get you comfortable in believing that he doesn't exist. He wants you to be a cute little gazelle bedded down on the African prairies, totally unaware that a lion is coming up right behind you to grab you by the neck. So I hope to be able to shake you out of your comfort, maybe even to spook you a little bit, because the unmistakable conclusion of the Bible is that spiritual conflict not only happened back then, it's very real, and it happens today. In fact, you could say it happens on four levels. At any time in your life, the demonic forces of wickedness all around you may be present in one of four levels. Think about them like a spectrum. Okay, On the far end, level one, there's no demonic involvement in your life. Right? Demons are real, but you're not on their crosshairs. You ought to praise God. Everything's going well. Hey, they're not involved in your life at all. But then if you take one more step to level two, you get what you might call demonic temptation. Demonic temptation. Now, the Bible teaches us not to blame God when we fall into sin. But each one of us is tempted when we are lured and enticed by our own desires. So what that means is you can't blame the devil Every time you yell at your wife or every time you lose patience with the person who sits next to you at the office. The devil didn't make you do it. You made yourself do it, okay? You're a sinner, and you need to ask God for forgiveness and grace so that you'd be different than you are, okay? But sometimes demons give us a little help. Great Puritan Thomas Brooks wrote the book, Precious Remedies for Satan's Devices trying to help us be aware of how Satan works. And he says the main way Satan works is that he presents the bait and hides the hook. He presents the bait and hides the hook. He maximizes the sense of pleasure that you think you're going to get from your sin and minimizes the sense of danger that actually is right there in front of you. Hey, it's no big deal. No big deal. Just, hey, just... Lie on your taxes. Nobody's ever going to know. They're hiring IRS agents. They're going to know. And God knows which scares you more. He presents the bait and hides the hook. Or Jesus experienced this himself. Forty days in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. And Jesus didn't have a sinful nature, so he wasn't lured and enticed by his own desires. But Satan provided him bait. If you're really the Son of God, turn this stone into bread. Call down the angels of heaven who will bear you up so that you don't strike your foot against a stone. Ask of me, bow before me, and I'll give you 
all the nations of the earth. I wonder what Satan tempts you with. I wonder what situations and circumstances constantly present themselves in front of you. It's like somebody's just teasing you and tempting you. It's like a beautiful apple drawing you in. Level two is demonic temptation. Level three is demonic oppression. That's when the hook's good and in you, and he's not letting go. Demonic oppression shows up in people's life when they are slaves to their sin, when they are in unbreakable patterns and habits. Self-destructive, shooting up heroin, smoking meth every day. They don't want to do it, but something inside of them is pulling them against their better judgment, keeping them chained up. Unbelief's the same way. Apostasy, when people leave and depart the faith, it didn't happen all at once. It happened with uh, demonic temptation. Like, well, hey, wait, you know, the demon thing, I, I, there's lots in the Bible I believe and I'm good with, but I don't know that I can go to the demon thing. And you hear the voice inside your head, well, that's okay. Just, you know, take the parts that you like. Take the parts that fit with your world and then, you know, leave the rest. And you do that once and then you come to something else that's a little uncomfortable. And I'm not sure if I agree with that either. I mean, this presents a morality and a frame view for seeing the world that's so far and distant from our own. Come on. This is the 21st century. Don't we progress as societies? Aren't we a little sensitive now to the needs of others? And step by step by step, you chain yourself to unbelief until you say to yourself, hey, I know that the God thing worked for me in the past, but not anymore. Demonic oppression. And then there's the fourth level, which is, of course, demonic possession. And when we think about the demonic, that's immediately where we go. Well, there's no demons in my life. I'm not possessed. And maybe you're not. I mean, I don't think you are. Wouldn't you be able to tell a demon-possessed person if you just looked at him? I mean, sometimes you could. In the Bible, there was this man, right? He was so crazy out of his mind, possessed, that he couldn't even keep his clothes on. And so finally, his friends in the village chained him up in the place where they could keep him, the graveyard. And all night long, he'd cry out, and he'd pick up rocks and try to kill himself, but never could. And that's a demon-possessed person, right? Well, that's the fourth level, is demon possession. And if you allow yourself to recognize that, that there are degrees of demonic activity, you start to wonder that maybe those 1,700 people looking for an exorcist aren't too far off base. Maybe there is a spiritual war going all around, and maybe if I'd allow myself to think about it with God's perspective, I got a little of that in my life. Maybe there's some cycles of brokenness, cycles of godlessness, an overwhelming weight of darkness that seems to be pressing down on me and around me. When I think about Luling, Texas, that's what I think about. Like the way Pastor Alan Davis from Maranatha said it to me one time, I was bemoaning the fact that on a Sunday morning, maybe less than 10% of our town is in a Bible-believing church. That's crazy. Down to 5,500 people, there's not 500 people in church today. What's up with that? And he said to me, Brad, he said, 
There are grandparents in this church, in this town, who've never been to church. Grandparents. They've grown up their whole life within a stone's throw of a Bible-believing church, and they've never walked in the doors. Man, I don't know if Satan could paint a better picture than that. He said, you know what I want is I want to get my, I want to get my fingers and my hooks so deep into the families of this town that I don't just pull mom and dad away, but for generations, people are blind to the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's a heaviness and a darkness around us. You don't get patterns of family violence from one bad mistake. You don't get drug addiction and cartel activity from one slip. Like, everybody's human. Now, Satan is having his way all around us. It's hit home for me a couple weeks ago. We had our kids' block party over at Longer Park. And so we, Pastor Jerry, made all these plans, and we're all hanging out, and Mr. Matthews is driving kids around in a train, and Paige Rispoli, I haven't seen Paige today, but Paige is over here off to the side talking to this young dude, mid-20s, for like 30 minutes, and then 45 minutes, and then for an hour, until finally she breaks away from him, and he disappears, and she comes to me, and she says, you need to come meet this guy. He's deeply troubled. She's like, I was sharing the gospel with him and telling him about Jesus, and then all of a sudden, this weird look came over his eyes, and it was like I was talking to a totally different person. And so I'm thinking to myself, like, well, you know, okay, I don't know. Her implication being that maybe this guy has a demon, right? So I said, well, hey, if he comes back, grab me. I'd love to meet him. And I was, you know, thinking he'd never show back up. He's been told about Jesus for an hour. So is he going to come back to somebody who does that? So anyway, a little while goes by, and she comes and grabs me, and there's this guy with her, and she says, hey, I want to meet you and introduce you. And so we introduce ourselves, and I say, well, hey, let's go sit down and talk. So we're talking about all this kind of stuff, and I'm asking him about his background, and hey, where are you from? What's going on in your life? And he tells me, you know, he's been in prison and some stuff like this, and then all of a sudden he starts talking to me about the three blood moons. And I, I, I don't know anything about three blood moons. So I said, I don't know anything about that. You're going to have to explain that to me. So, well, my friend told me about it, and she prays to most holy death. Okay, that's a little creepy to me. I don't know if you guys have heard of Santa Muerte. Don't read the Wikipedia article. You will not be able to sleep tonight, okay? But I know enough to know, okay, this is some weird stuff I'm dealing with here. So I said, well, who do you pray to? And he said, well, you know, sometimes I pray to God, but sometimes I pray to the Spirit who lives inside of me. I said, what's that spirit's name? He said, Lucifer. My hair did what your hair's doing, okay? I'm thinking like, whoa. So I said, well, hey, I pray to the God of heaven, and his name's Jesus. And the dude looked at me with crazy eyes. And I said, Jesus sets people free from demons, you know? He says, he does? And I said, yeah, the Gospels are full of stories of Jesus doing that. He said, well, what do you got to do? And I said, we got to pray. Before I could lead the dude in a prayer, this is what he says, Father in heaven, you know I'm a sinner and I need you so desperately. Will you set me free from this demon? You know what I thought? You know what the Lord impressed upon me? What in a sense of relief that this guy already knew how to get the help. It was that the demon in this guy was making fun of me, was mocking me. And so Sunday morning, 
I get a phone call. I say, hey, there's this creepy guy in the sanctuary. And I come in here, and it's the same dude sitting right back there where Benny's sitting. And I took him by the hand, and I said, man, I'm so glad you're here. And he was wearing sunglasses and acting weird. And I said, if you're going to be here, you got to follow our rules. you got to take your sunglasses off. And when he did, his pupils were blasted. I knew immediately, this dude is high. Now you tell me, where does the scattered and fragmented mental state of this man who's been smoking meth for the past five years end? And where does the demon begin? Where is that line? And do you think it matters a lick to God where the line is? Or do you think this dude is so in the grip of Satan that his only hope is some power from somewhere? It ain't going to be enough to say, well, you know, Jesus did this all the time in the Gospels. What that boy needed was somebody to grab him by the shoulder and say, my Jesus can set you free right now. Let's get on our knees and let's pray until the thing is done. Now, Satan wants me and you to be convinced that demon stuff happened a long time ago, but there's nothing like it happening now. I'm telling you, church, you want to follow Jesus? You want to share the hope of the gospel in our circle of influence until every man, woman, and child knows and follows Jesus? Get ready. Because every demon Satan's got in hell is going to fight you tooth and nail. You want to see Jesus reign in your family? Get ready. Where did where, where my child learn to act like that? I raised them better than that. What do you think? I've never seen somebody act like that before. Our world is messed up. No telling. Paul calls him the God of this age. The spirit that's work in the sons of disobedience. It's about time the church wakes up to the reality. As long as we live in this broken world, we're going to face spiritual conflict. And there's some good news. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to put on our demon goggles, looking under every rock and behind every tree and behind every illness and behind every drug addict. We don't have to wonder where the demons are. They're everywhere. Wake up and get ready. Shoot. About halfway through my sermon. So I guess the question is, Will we respond any better than the disciples did? It's fine to acknowledge the fact that there's spiritual conflict, but what are you going to do about it? Well, Jesus shows back up, and he identifies a problem. Quickly, let's just run through this. Verse 19, he says, Oh, you unbelieving generation, how long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. Jesus identifies the problem for people like us. Problem's not that the demons aren't there and we're there. It's not a problem of proximity. If only we could get to where the demons are, then we'd be all right. It's a problem of faith. We don't have the faith. It's almost like he says, haven't you guys learned anything? Haven't you been following me for three years? Don't you know enough about the demonic realm that you can deal with this demon? In fact, they did know. 
Mark tells us back in Mark 6.13 that Jesus gave them authority to preach and to cast out demons, and he sent them out, and they went, and they had success. The demons were cast out before them. In fact, later in Luke's gospel, he sends out 70 disciples in pairs. When they come back, he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. And they were really shaking the foundations of Satan's kingdom. But here at the foot of this mountain, they run into a problem. I think it's a problem you and I probably face. They had experience. They had a track record they could fall back on. I I like to think that maybe this kid shows up with this dad, and they think to themselves, oh, yeah, this is like that time we were in such and such village. There was a kid just like this. We know exactly what to do. They were relying on their wisdom and their experience. They were using Jesus' name, maybe, like a magic spell. That's not the way it works. In fact, Luke tells us in Acts 19 that there was a group of Jewish exorcists. I love this story. This is Acts 19, verse 11. And they had started to see what God was doing through Paul. Luke says in Luke 19, 11, that God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out. There's a, a prayer handkerchief. They, Paul would pray over it, and they'd take it, and the demons would leave. But also, some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus. Now listen, saying this, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus, and I know Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Hey, this isn't the way demon stuff works. You don't learn some techniques and magical spells and grab a guy at Longer Park by the shoulders and say, I pronounce you clean, and it's done. The disciples tried that, and it didn't work. The problem they had was a lack of faith. And in the same way... There's no church program that you or I can devise that can free people from demonic oppression. Me and Jerry aren't going to come up with a great Wednesday night program that's going to set this city free. But most of us think that. You know, we, we'll just keep doing what we've always done and things are going to change. But that's not the way it works with Jesus. The problem was they had a lack of faith, and so he has to set them straight. Oh, unbelieving generation. How long will I be with you? How long will I put up with you? Which brings him to his promise. He says, bring the boy to me. And so he asks for some further details. And he tells the man. Well, the man says, if you can do anything to help us, take pity on us and do it. And Jesus says, what do you mean if I can? Everything, all things are possible For him who believes. So the problem is a lack of faith, but here's the promise. Faith is really powerful. There's some power in faith. I mean, in other places, Jesus says, if you only have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move and it'll be done. Faith is powerful. Belief that God is able to do what he said he's able to do. Now, I love, of course, the man's response. Well, I do believe, but help my unbelief. I've been there. 
I want to believe so desperately that God can come through in my life, and yet there's this tinge of doubt. And it's almost like this verse is there for us, people like me. said, hey, it's not the strength of your faith that proves the power. It's the object that your faith is placed in. And we do worship a powerful Savior. We've sang about him all morning. I mean, we're talking about Jesus, the one who died and rose again so that there's no enemy that he can't defeat. In fact, the only enemy left is death. And one day when time is over, he's going to raise up those who are dead in him to live with him forever. We're talking about the Jesus who every time Satan tempted him said no. He saw the bait and he saw the hook and he recommitted himself to the way of God. Even in his deepest, darkest moment, Father, if you're able, let this cup pass from me, yet not what I want, but what you want be done in me. I mean, we're talking about the Jesus who can change a leper's spots. Leper comes to him and says, hey, help me, and he touches him and he's clean. We're talking about a man who can raise a little girl, Talitha, get up. We're talking about a man who can cast a legion of demons out of a man chained to a tomb. If he can do that, I wonder what he could do for you and me. I wonder what intractable problem are you facing? What situation in your marriage or in your home, in your career, in your own heart? What is it? I think if you were here today, he would say to you, whatever it is, it's possible. It's possible. There's no secret formula. There's no five or six steps that I can guarantee you to success, what it requires is the humility of faith. To cast yourself completely on him. Reminds me of that story. You might have heard it. I have a friend who worked with the Wycliffe Bible Translators, and he came and taught us about prayer a few years ago. And he told us a story about a young girl who was a missionary to a remote mountain village in East Asia. This village was so remote that the mountain pass that led to it froze up for all but two months out of the year. And so all year long, she was studying their language so that when the pass opened up, she could go in and tell them the story of the Bible, tell them about Jesus. So when she gets there, she notices that no one's where she expects them to be. They're not out and about enjoying the relatively mild weather. They're all huddled up in one tent. And so this girl goes to the tent, and she asks what's going on, and it turns out the chief's daughter, young girl, is deathly ill and is laying in the middle of the room. They've tried every technique they know to heal her. They've done everything they can do. They're desperate. This little girl's hanging on for dear life. And so the missionary says, would it be okay if I prayed to my God for your daughter? And the chief says, of course you can. Please do whatever you can do. And so she gets down and just prays the simple prayer, Jesus, we pray that you would heal this little girl. And it wasn't immediate, but over the next couple of days, the girl got better and better and better to the point where the whole village was convinced that whoever this God was that this girl prayed to, he was worthy of their worship and devotion. And so they invited her to stay, and they said, will you please teach us about this God? And they converted to Christianity. So as she's with them over the couple of months, she's trying to set them straight in the faith trying to help them understand this new world they're living in. And as she goes around the village, learning their customs and way of life, she sees these carved statues hanging over the doorway of every tent. And she asks them, what, what are these things? 
And she says, well, these are our talismans that keep us safe from the spirits who come down out of the mountains at night. Now, how does that hit you? Superstitious mountain people, right? Primitive in their understanding of the world, have hand-carved wooden talismans to protect them from evil spirits. Crazy. But this girl didn't say, hey, those things are superstitious. Throw those away. She said, well, you don't need those anymore. Here's what you do. When the spirits come at night, simply say this, we belong to Jesus, go away. We belong to Jesus, go away. And so the two months end, and she leaves the village, and for the whole year is preparing to return the next year. When the mountain pass finally opens, and she goes to the village, the people meet her in the road on the way. And they tell her, it works. It works. We say to the spirits, we belong to Jesus, go away. And they leave. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about the power of faith, not the power of a special spell. We belong to Jesus, go away. We're talking about faith in the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, who has subjected every evil spirit to shame. Paul talks about it in the book of Colossians. Are you still with me? I hope so. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians. He says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers, authorities, all things have been created through him and before him. And he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church, and he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have the first place in everything, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, nothing can stand against Jesus. Nothing in my life, nothing in your life, nothing in some remote mountain village of Mongolia. It doesn't matter who or where they are. Nothing can stand against Jesus. We belong to him. Go away. Which brings us quickly to the practical the disciples finally get him in the room and they say, okay, you're going to have to explain this. We were able to cast out all these other ones. What gives with this one? And he says, this kind only comes out by prayer. See, the practical thing is this. Prayer is the expression of faith. It is our heart crying out to God, admitting to him our helplessness and weakness. Lord, we don't know what to do in this circumstance. Jesus, we are powerless, but you are strong. Come and have your way in our lives. And church, I'm telling you that when you have faith in the God who raises the dead and who can move mountains, when you face spiritual conflict, you can face it with kingdom power. The same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is ready to work in your life. I don't know what problem it is. I don't know if it's a relational problem. Maybe you've got problems with your kids like this dad did. You've tried everything. You're at your last hope. Cry out to Jesus. Jesus, you're going to have to come through for me with my kids. I'm struggling. Maybe they're little. Maybe they're rebellious teenagers. Maybe they're grown kids who've wandered away from the way you raised them. You need Jesus to work in them. You're not going to convince them out of that. 
You need Jesus to come in with his loving hand and grab them and pull them out. Maybe it's an internal struggle. Maybe you've lost sight of the beauty of Christ. Maybe somehow Satan has blinded you once again. That though you saw Jesus crystal clear and you knew what he wanted from you, you've drifted, and because you've drifted, making concession after concession and compromise after compromise, the hook's in. Doesn't matter how hard you try, you can't pull away. Maybe today you need to cry out that you'd be set free from that way of thinking. Maybe it's habits of sin. You got anything you wish you couldn't do anymore? Any way of speaking or thinking or acting that you know is destructive to you and to the people you love most, but it seems like you are powerless to get out of its grip? Maybe you need to cry out, I believe you can save me from this, Jesus. I believe you can set me free from the chain of my sin. Do it. Help my unbelief. And maybe it is our city that Satan wants us to think this place is too far gone. That everybody who wants to hear about Jesus has already heard about him. Maybe we need to cry out as a church that Jesus would set the city free from its bondage to Satan and Jesus would reign as king. This morning I've asked members of our prayer team and some of our deacons to join me down here at the front. You know exactly where you need prayer. You know exactly what situation and circumstance you need to cry out to God to intervene in. you got names of people who've been on your heart and as we talked about demonic temptation and oppression, you said, that's what's going on in them. That explains it. I've always wondered what the deal was. What made the shift? I need somebody to pray with you over them. Please respond to God. Please hear Him telling you to cry out to Him, to join with another Christian in prayer. We didn't do it in the front to embarrass you. We just did it for the convenience. So as we stand up here, if you'd like somebody to pray with you, crying out to our powerful God to intervene in your circumstances, please come. I'm going to invite our band to come and prepare to lead us in the song. The prayer team and deacons, would you come and join me at the front? And if you don't need prayer, why don't you just bow your head and pray for those who do?